Just, okay, just making sure. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, pizza and salad. Boy, that, doesn't, that seems like something you don't want to miss, right? So we're, I was thinking about what you said too, Missy, that uh, what a joy it is to see the children, but even to see our youth uh, growing as well, and not just physically, but just in numbers. So we've got those things going on this week as we celebrate the wrapping up of 2020. All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll get into our message for today. Father, thank you uh, for the voices of these children. Lord, how precious it must be to you as you look on these little souls that are growing up under your teaching, under the teaching of mom and dad and grandparents and and whomever may be in their lives directing them to you. Uh, Lord, thank you for Roylene and Missy and for Hamp and uh, Shelby and and all those who put this together today. And uh, just thank you that you're in the business of changing hearts. Lord, as I think about the people in my life that I've known over the years and even my own life of how the day came that you saw fit to open my eyes to see the truth. Lord, uh, we just need that. We need you to open the hearts of those that are in darkness right now, uh, that they would be able to celebrate this time with us and celebrate eternal life. Lord, we're blessed to be here today also because we can hear your truth and your words spoken to us. And so uh, would you do that? Would you just minister to our hearts today? Would you use our emotions, our feelings to edify and honor your truth? Lord, not that the truth comes from our emotions, but uh, Lord, we certainly are emotional people and uh, we need those to tie together. And so I pray that you would do both in our lives today. Thank you for the message of truth. And now open our ears that we may hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well. As I've been telling you, we're going to conclude today with our third of the mini-series in our study on Jesus' life and the gift that God has given to us. Two weeks ago, we studied how Jesus is a gift of God through the Holy Spirit, a very important message that we brought. And uh, then last week is certainly about a gift of our salvation. Today, I want to talk and most specifically focus on the subject of worship. The subject of worship. You may have already heard that theme running throughout this morning. And it's always just a blessing to me. And I don't know what Pastor Hamp does. Maybe he looks over my notes or something. I'm not sure. But he just seems to know what songs to put together that fit with the the message. And this Sunday was certainly no less than that. So I want to ask you to stand as we read Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And uh, get this picture of the heart of those magi those men that came to find Jesus. So Matthew writes this in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among you the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until he came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. All right, you may be seated. Now, there are lots of uh, different subjects we could study in that particular section. But what I want to focus on, as I said this morning, is I want to really focus on the the meaning behind what God is doing in this particular section, which is Matthew tells us that these people called Magi came for a very specific purpose. And you see that in verse 2. Very clearly are we told that they came to worship the Lord Jesus. And that's really important for us to focus on. And that's what was captivating my mind as I thought through this series 
as I was putting it together because it's really what God wants from us. That's really the focus of everything that God wants from his people, and that is to worship him. I mean, it's just too often. It's just way too often that people believe that, or by following God, that they'll get something from him. And that's not wrong in itself and by itself, but often that's the thinking because God delights to give to his children. But again, too often, it's pretty apparent that we as God's people look for something from him, something that we can get from him instead of giving to him. And I really want us to hear it that way. You know, we, it's not wrong for us to give from him. There are many sermons that we could preach on that, many passages of Scripture that God says to us. We've seen that in Matthew's letter in the Sermon on the Mount, that God will provide everything for us. But unfortunately, from our sinful hearts, that's how we often think. How much can I get from God in this particular area when God really wants as a priority from us to worship him? He wants something in return. He will provide for us everything that we need, but he wants from us Worship. Now, before we go too far, let's just define what worship is. In the Greek language, it's a derivative of another word, but it basically means to kiss or to crouch, to bow oneself, to lay oneself out. One writer said this, and it's kind of like the dog licking the master's hand. Now you say, Ooh, I don't know if I like that picture or not. And I kind of thought that myself as I read that. But then I thought, well, if you have an animal that loves you, you know one of the first things they like to do is lick you, right? We at home have a chocolate lab, and he's a big monster beast. He's kind of getting old now. But the older he gets, it's really interesting, the older he gets, the more he wants to be around us. And he, he loves to lick. In fact, my wife has a sign that used to hang on our freezer that said, warning, chocolate lab, he'll lick you to death. Because that's just what he loves to do. Well, the idea, I think, behind the meaning of this particular definition from this particular author is it's a love expression from an animal that shows us what God is looking to from our own hearts. You know, this phrase that a dog never knows you as a stranger, they're always the most excited thing to see you come home, right? And so the idea behind worship is something similar to that, but it's this attitude of the heart of giving and paying respect to God that flows out of what we would say is our expression of who we believe him to be, worship. We're worshiping our God because of who he is. If you do much reading in the Christian realm, you'll know the title or the name A.W. Tozer. He's written much over the years. He's going to be with the Lord. It says, worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of our Father which are in heaven. I love that kind of definition because it really brings to focus what I think God really wants us to be thinking as we come into his presence, as we think about him, that we're delighted to be near him and to be in his presence. We just love that drawing effect that the Spirit has, and we just can't get enough. If you've been walking with the Lord, you know what I'm talking about. If you're born again, you know that you just can't get enough of the Lord, that you just want more and more of him. And unfortunately, again, too long, many people have worshipped God in the wrong way, or at least what they think worship is. But unfortunately, it becomes an act of externalism. People often do the external act of worship when God is really looking for something internal. And what I mean by this is, is that often people will think of the idea of worship as something I got to go do, as if it's something outside of me. In other words, I go to the church to worship. And I'm going to talk about the importance of that in just a minute. But the idea is that it's external in everything. I go to a building. Some people think of it as going to a temple or some even in the pagan world who still understand that worship is important, not of the God that we know, but of worship itself. And the definition is they would go to some shrine or perform some specific ritual, people would think. Worship is all about the ritual and what we do externally. Some use some kind of trinket in their worship. If you just want to use, and that could cover a lot of things, just that word, or reciting some specific rites of passage or some sacred ritual or rite. Others would think of worship as being 
offered by what they do, such as holding prayer beads or some type of artifact that brings them in their minds in a closer way to the God that they're trying to worship. In fact, the Buddhists use what's called a prayer wheel. And if you've ever studied that faith, you have seen this before, I'm sure. But it's like a little round cylindrical thing, that, or a circular thing that sits on a, a stick. And it's almost like something children would play with, but they spin it. And on this, they believe that they'll bring themselves better karma and drive away the bad karma. And that's a very simplistic kind of an understanding of that. Some people think that through sacred art or being in some specific posture, you know, there are people who believe, oh no, you got to be kneeling this way or that, or you can't be turned in this direction, and on and on and on it goes. And people identify worship with those kinds of externalisms, those kind of outside things. We could take that even further, that some people believe that worship can only be offered when certain candles are lit or specifically lit in a certain way, or you have to be pointing in a certain direction, or there has to be incense that's burned, or... People have to wear a certain type of garment in order to truly be worshiping. And this kind of thing has been passed down even into the church. I mean, how many people have we seen and known over the years and talked to that would say to us when we invite them to come, oh, no, I I can't go. And you want to say, well, why can't you go? And one of the first things they'll say is, well, I don't have the right clothes. You see, what they've done is they've identified the externalism of life with God as being what's most important. And that couldn't be further from the truth. These things have their own place in some kind of way, but it's really not what God is looking for when it comes to worship. In fact, Jesus would make this clear when he encounters the woman at the well when she asked where the most acceptable place was to worship. If you remember the story in John chapter 4, Basically, her question was, okay, Jesus, you say that you're a Jew, so you worship in Jerusalem at the temple. Well, we're Samaritans, so we worship at Mount Gerizim. So which one is the most appropriate place? And Jesus says that has nothing to do with it. Where you worship is not the important thing. In fact, Jesus says, John writes this of Jesus' words, an hour is coming as he's speaking to this woman, and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Did you hear what Jesus said? It has nothing to do with the externals of this life. I'm talking about true worship. God is looking for the heart. And so Jesus is basically saying where you worship has nothing to do with true worship. What you do externally has nothing to do with worship in its truest sense. The true worship, or to truly worship, your heart must be engaged. That was the discussion that he was having with this woman at the well. In other words, if we were using Jesus's, if we were using our words in Jesus' place, we would say to her, Dear woman, listen, what I want is your heart. That's what I want. Worship is born out of a right heart. No matter how beautiful the structure may be, and I'm talking about the physical building, no matter what that looks like or how perfectly written the liturgy is, and that's just the uh, recitations or the way the, the, uh, the service is laid out or what the church has even believed over the years or what the act of worship in the sense of order is. None of that really matters in the face and the heart of God. What God is looking for is for the heart to be open to him. And to desire him more than anything else. John MacArthur wrote this. He said, true worship occurs when the heart of the worshiper becomes more earnest. And when the truth consumes the mind of the worshiper. Boy, I love that statement. Can I just read it again? True worship occurs when the heart of the worshiper becomes more earnest. And when the truth consumes the mind of the worshiper. Listen. You've heard me say this so many times, and I'm just going to say it again. The reason we go verse by verse, book by book, all the way through the scriptures, or whatever it may be, is so that we are gaining truth. Because from truth comes correct and accurate worship, right? If we don't have the truth clearly given to us from God and delineated into our hearts and minds, our worship will take all kinds of strange paths. Why? Because we were built to worship. 
We've already talked about that last week. We were built to worship, but if we worship in a wrong way because we don't understand, excuse me, if we worship because we don't know the truth, then we will worship in a wrong way. And so this is what he's saying here. Let's use Israel as an example. You'll remember that when they left Egypt, one of the first things God did was gave them commandments. Those are the Ten Commandments, and that's what most people remember and know. But did you know, or have you ever thought about this, that God was telling them in the very first two how not to worship? That was the priority. I mean, you would think that if God was giving instruction to a nation, he would say to them first, now here's what you got to do. You got to appoint a leader. Well, he already had Moses. Or now you've got to set up your perimeter and your boundaries and you got to do this, this, and this. But no, that's not what God said. Listen to what he said. I am the Lord your God, this is in Exodus 20, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, look at me, Israel. I did this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In other words, the first thing that God gave to Israel when he pushed them out or sent them out of Egypt, delivered them out of Egypt, was, I want you to remember your priority is to worship me. Don't forget that. That's number one. But you and I know as we followed the story, they eventually failed, and they failed miserably. They failed in big-time ways. And so God said to them over time, as he was now about to have them cross over into the promised land in places like Deuteronomy 8, and there are multiple passages, but just let me give you a couple here. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 19, we're told through Moses, it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God, and this is God writing through Moses, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, you shall perish, because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is because Exodus chapter 20 was the entrance or the delivery out of Egypt. Now 40 years have passed, and God writes through Moses this passage in Deuteronomy because now they're just about to pass over into the new land, and God reminds them again, hey, your number one priority is to worship me. Don't fall for other gods, but your priority is to worship me. And he would go on later throughout the book in Deuteronomy 28 and show Israel the seriousness of neglecting him. We read this in our men's Bible study on Monday night, and it was just an overpowering passage of Scripture as the first, I think, 14 verses are the blessings of God, but the rest of the verses all the way through, I think it's 69 verses of the chapter, are God defining for Israel how bad it's going to be for them if they forget what he's told them and the tragedies that are going to come upon them. And even last week, as I've already mentioned, we saw Paul as he preached to the church in Rome, what would happen to those and what is happening to those who refuse to worship God from the heart but follow other gods. Listen, if, just as a reminder, in verse 24, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Why did he do that? Because their desire was to worship. But if you remember the context, they worshiped themselves, which delivered them into the hands of foreign and false gods. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They did that. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now let me just define for you a little more clearly what it means to give them over. That really is in two parts. One is an indirect giving over and then the other is a direct giving over. The indirect part is where God removes his hand of protection spiritually from their hearts and from their minds, so that they follow into ungodly things. It's as if God is saying, listen, if you're not going to obey me and you're not going to listen to me as God, there is no other God, don't forget that, then I'm going to release your mind into a path that you will never be able to come out of. I'm going to remove my restraining power over your soul, over the thinking processes of your mind, so that you go into ungodliness like you've never seen before. Did you know that you and I, as God's people, are literally protected by the restraining power of the Holy Spirit over our minds? Our hearts are guarded from sinful temptations and tendencies in this life? That's the love of God, beloved. 
God graciously and kindly protects us by pricking our conscience and talking to our minds to keep us from deviating from the path and the plan that he has for us. It's a great act of mercy and grace on his part. But the unsaved world doesn't have that. And so this is an example of how God has removed his protective hand over them. The direct part is simply what we read in in Exodus and Numbers, is that there are times where God judges physically, tangibly, in in order to punish people, to draw them back. And as we read Romans 1, it just got worse. You know, God says in that verse, and then verse 20, excuse me, in verse 24, he turned them over. And the process here is that as people continually followed their path of ungodliness, he gave them over again in verse 26. And then he gave them over again in verse 28. And it is this stair-stepping of defilement of themselves as God backs up more and more from them and says, you want your way? Go for it. I'm releasing you to all of that. And ultimately, we saw last week, to that mind that is no longer a rational mind. A mind that cannot think like a rational mind should think. Again, that's why you and I look at our culture today and we say, how in the world can the world come up with that kind of idiotic thinking? Well, to the darkened mind, they don't know any different. It seems perfectly rational to them. But that's because the Lord has released that sinful mind to do what it desires to do if they will not turn to him. And I don't have time to teach all through Romans 1, but you should read that for yourself and be reminded, beloved, of the grace and the mercy that God has shown you to protect you from that kind of disastrous result. So basically what we're saying here, and I want to remind us here, is that the whole point is that God wants the worshiper to have the right heart. To have a right heart. That's what he's really after. It all begins there. In other words, if our heart is not right... Listen carefully. If our hearts are not right, worship means nothing. No matter how you act in the act of what you call worshiping and what I call worshiping, if our hearts are not right, it means nothing. To God I'm talking about. It may look good to your neighbor. And you may give a lot of awe and wows and look how religious they are and how great they are. But to God, he's going to say to you that means nothing. And we're going to see that in just a second. And by the way, just so you know, it's very easy to fall into false worship. You and I have that tendency. We can do that. We can easily succumb to what the world pushes on us. I mean, for as, as much as we give Israel a hard time for how they failed in the Lord's direction and what the God called them to, you and I can do the same thing, even if it's unintentional. Let me give you some examples of how we do that. Number one, when our time takes precedence over God's time. When our time takes precedence over God's time. What do I mean by that? Well, what's today? Today is Sunday, right? Today is the day that the Lord has called us to corporately worship together. Well, oftentimes people will say, well, I don't need to worship God on Sunday. I mean, Sunday's just another day. And sometimes we can fall into that trap. We can get so locked into what the world demands of us that we can forget that Sunday really should be a special time for us. Okay, now I'm not saying the other days are not just as special. Every day is holy unto the Lord, right? Every day is a day to worship the Lord. But there is a uniqueness about the gathering of the body together that that happened way back at the time of the resurrection that God looks for us to do. So that's one way we can do it, where things of my life take precedence in time I'm talking about. My time is, you'll hear people say this, my time is precious to me. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I have time. You know, I don't want to take the time to go to be a part of the church. And I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the body of believers. Which leads us to the second thing, which is sometimes our things or our stuff can keep us from worship. A lot of times our bank account keeps us from fully investing our hearts and our souls into worship. We look at the checkbook and we say, oh my goodness, how am I going to do this? How am I going to meet this need? And, and when things go poorly for us, like we lose a job during the time of COVID or some other times and life just seems to get all upset in the world of finances, we have a tendency to say, God, what's going on here? 
And you see, it can spiral downhill from there as we begin to shake our finger at God. Maybe we would never think we would do that, but we begin to challenge God and ask Him, what's going on? Why aren't you providing like I thought you were going to? And we get locked into the things of our life. Our health can do that. If our health goes south, for whatever reason, we can say, hey, I thought this life was supposed to be better than this as a Christian. And we begin to challenge God with some of these things. And we stop our heart worship and we begin to question him more than we just worship him. If things go bad in our home or with our children or if our spouse, somebody that we love, struggles in life and we don't see God acting and reacting in the way that we think he should, often our worship can be affected. And it goes on and on from there. If you want to think of it this way, you can think of it as anything we put in front of God becomes false worship because it becomes idolatry. That's what he was warning the Israelites about. Don't let anything, you put it down, whatever you want it to be, get in the way of your relationship with me as the priority. And what I want from you is to worship me. That is your number one priority. And we saw Israel really mess that up. Now you might say, well, I get that. I I can see it. I can see how this could be a problem. I could see potentially how I could even fall into this missing what God really wants for me. But you might say, but I don't do it purposefully. I mean, it's not the purpose of my heart, the intention of my heart to do this. Does that still make it idolatry? I mean, certainly God understands. Yes, God understands. God understands everything. But let's be careful that we don't use our grace, as God says. Don't let, let's don't let God's grace become a license to us to sin. Sometimes people will say, oh, you know, God understands. It'll be all right. You know, I I know it's not the best thing to do, but I I know I shouldn't be thinking this way. But God's God's a God of grace, and he's God of mercy. He'll understand, and we kind of live that way. But listen to what Job said. Job said in Job 31, If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust... If I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I had looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment for I would have denied God above. You know what Job's saying? He's saying even the remotest distraction from Paying attention to God as the priority of my life becomes idolatry. God said, I will have no other gods before me. None. Not your blanket, not your car tires, not your wallet, not your piece of thread that you've kept for years, even the locks of hair that you kept off your infant child for 45 years. Whatever should not ever become a priority over God. All right, here's the third thing we can do this. Worship becomes false when we want to worship God in our own way. And a lot of people say, well, I don't have to go into the church building. I don't have to be with God's people. In fact, you'll hear people say, I just, I, I can worship God better on the side of the mountain. I've had people tell me that. You've probably had people tell me, you've probably thought that before. In fact, you probably had those thoughts when people were irritating to you and you just wanted to be away from everybody and thought, I'll just go to the river and fish because I can worship God better there. Or I'll go to the mountain, or I'll go, and, and I was telling the early service this this morning, uh, it's amazing to me how worshipful the golf course can be. I mean, you would think every church should resurrect or establish a, 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 a pulpit at every hole on the golf course because of how many people can worship the Lord out on the golf course. And now listen, I'm being hard on these things, but of course it's true that God can be worshiped in every place. But usually that's an excuse to deny what God has said, which takes us back to what we said earlier. In Hebrews chapter 10, the Lord has very clearly said to us, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't do it. But we have to ask the question, why is that? Because he doesn't really elaborate on that. What is he saying to us? He's saying worship is a matter of the heart, but it is also expressed in the population of my people or in the gathering of my people. How many of you all were blessed just a minute ago as you saw these children standing here in front of us? Wasn't that a blessing? You ever ask yourself questions like, why is that a blessing? No, because you're not thinking like that. 
That's not the way people typically think. My mind's a little weird, so I think like that. And I ask questions of God. Why is it a blessing to us to be gathered together and watch children do this? Because God has built into us the desire to be with one another. How many of you all have felt through this COVID thing the dreadful results and feelings of being isolated? It's terrible, isn't it? I'm having more and more people say to me when, when we ask them, how are you doing through all this? Man, I just want to be around people. I just feel so isolated. More and more people are having to work from home, right? Praise the Lord, we've got that ability. But a lot of people are sitting in their homes so much so that they don't encounter anybody other than through the phone or through Zoom. Now again, praise the Lord that we have that. But there is a mechanism in the heart that says, I just want to be with people. I can't stand being alone. I just want to have a physical connection with people. That's because God built us that way. And God wants for us to come together. Listen, can you imagine the delight of the Lord as he sees the children in front of you praising him? Can you imagine the delight the Lord must have as our father when he sees you coming collectively to worship him? Those of us who are fathers and mothers who have children that are grown and out of the home now for the most part, understand what we miss when the children are not there anymore? You know, people a lot of times will dread those empty nest years. It's a wonderful time in a lot of ways, but at the same time, it's a dreadful time because it's very lonely. We want the children to be together with us. We want the family together. Well, why is that? Well, it's because God is like that. God wants his family to be together. And so sometimes we can say, oh, I don't need all of that. I don't need family stuff. I, can, I don't need the, the, the church stuff. I can do my own thing. But you know what's also interesting is when you look in the pages of Scripture, there are very, very few times where you see private worship going on. Very few times. There are a couple times, and again, it's not wrong to worship privately, but most of the time what we have is corporate worship shown to us. Let me give you some examples. Here's one in Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation 7. Verse 8 in Revelation 5, when he, that's John, or excuse me, Jesus, and John the apostle is writing this, you know, from our study in Revelation. When Jesus had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. I just want you to try to picture this scene. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Do you know what's interesting in those verses? It's plural. It's group. It's gathering. It's not singular. It's not just about John or just one person. Revelation 7, this other beautiful view into heaven that John has. After these things, I looked, he says, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Can you just envision that? And palm branches were in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Boy, what a church service. Talking about a worship experience. I mean, we, we get the beauty of having the fraction of what it's going to be like one day in the, in the kingdom when we're all there together, but that's the point. We don't have any record, at least in Scripture, of God saying to us, go into your own little apartments and worship me privately. Now, that may be the case, but what we do have a picture of is this collective corporate worship of lifting their hearts together to praise God. Luke chapter 2, we see a little bit of this as well in verse 13, when Jesus is born. Suddenly there appeared with the angel, you remember the angel gives the announcement, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Wow, just put yourself in that shepherd's field on that night as the angel comes and gives testimony to the Savior who has been born, and then the heavens just explode with this multitude. And that's all we're told. A mul what's a multitude? I have no idea. But that's a lot. That's a lot. 
praising God. And why didn't God just say, here, just do this one? I don't know, but it certainly seems to fit with what we're talking about here. I have to say that one of my pet peeves, and this is just a personal thing with me, is that I love songs that sing the corporate praises, like we gather together. But so many today seem to be about me and and I and I worship. And that's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. So don't hear that. But how blessed we are when we sing collectively together. You know, isn't it a joy when we all lift our voices together and we're all together praising? Isn't that exciting? For those of you men, I don't know if you've ever been to men's conferences or not, but stood in, in the midst of hundreds or thousands of men lifting their voices in praise to the Lord. It is just awesome. There's just something overpowering about that. Or ladies, when they gather together and they sing, it's a beautiful thing. Often I sit here on the front row and I listen to you singing and I'm just imagining what heaven is like as God is receiving your your voices in worship. But the danger is, and this is the point of this morning, the danger is we can go through all the motions of that and our hearts be far from the Lord. And God will not receive that as worship. This really becomes the point. Okay, so now, let's go on to the fourth thing. By far the worst form of false worship is to worship God with a wrong attitude. And that was Herod. When he said to the Magi, Hey, when you find the child, come back and tell me, because I want to worship him too. But we know that wasn't true. No, they didn't know at the time, but that wasn't true because it was about a year later that he would send his soldiers to murder all the male children up to two years of age. And so we get very clearly the picture that Herod had no intention of worshiping in the sense that we're talking about here. He wanted to slaughter this one who had come to take his potential place in the throne. And there are other examples of wrong attitudes in people's worship. And God was very clear with Israel about this because what had happened, before I read some of these passages, I want you to understand they had become so routine in their daily rituals of what God required, that the priests began just doing that, going through the motions. And they weren't offering God the best anymore. If you remember the the study in Scripture, God says, I want you to offer me the very best that you have of your animals so that uh, you're not skimping on anything, but you're giving out of the expression of your heart everything that you could potentially offer to God. That's why God said, give me your best animal. Reserve your best animal for me for sacrifice. And that way you'll be showing what's really in your heart. Here, God, take the best of what I have, not the leftovers. But often we give the leftovers. Oh, oh yeah, shoot, I forgot to give something to the Lord. Here you go. Or, okay, okay, I'll give you five minutes of my time. Or I'll serve on this, but, you know, beyond that, I really don't want to do that for very long. Because, you know, I'm tired and and all that's human. It's all the way we are. But often we use those excuses because we really don't have a right heart. Our heart is not really with the Lord. Listen to what he says through Malachi. And then I want to read a passage in Amos and then Isaiah. This is God speaking. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Well, if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect, says the Lord? O priests who despise my name. But you say, well, have we despised your name? You know why they said that? Because they were doing the externals. They were doing everything that they were instructed to do. But listen to what the Lord says. You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, that doesn't sound like the best animal, does it? Is that not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Why not offer that to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. And he's talking about the tabernacle. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. 
And in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. But you are profaning it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, as, and as for its fruit, its food is, is, is to, be a disp- to be despised. You also may say, my how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. That verse in verse 13, what he's saying about tiresome is, it's like the priests were saying, I'm so tired of doing the sacrificial system day after day after day, month after month. This is so wearisome. And so they just were just saying, oh, fine. Just do what God requires, and that's, that's good. So God's really fussing at them about it. Verse 14, but cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am the great king, says the Lord, and my name is feared among the nations. In other words, they were promising something to God, but they weren't giving it. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. Again to Israel, I hate and reject your festivals. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. You already said they're doing the motions. They're going through the rituals. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. How about that? How would you like this morning, after we just sang praises to the Lord, for the Lord to come down in our presence and say, Take away the noise of all of that garbage because your heart is not in it. I don't want it. That's what he said to Israel. I'll not even listen to the sound of your harps. Hamps up here strumming. Julio's playing. Missy's playing. And I'm not picking on them. I'm just trying to make the point here. God's saying to Israel, look, you can have the best violinist in the world, but if your heart is not in this towards me, as your God, I don't want to hear it. I don't want it. Hosea chapter 6. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, Judah? These were tribes in Israel. For your loyalty is, listen to this, like a morning cloud. You know what a morning cloud is? We said some the other day, the fog, right? Just wait a little bit and it'll be gone. Your loyalty's like fog. And like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them with, by the words of my mouth. In other words, his message from the prophet cuts right through all of that garbage. And the judgments on you are like light that goes forth. For, listen, here it is. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Listen, they only wanted what they could get. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. And we'll do this. We'll do this. But they became a bother to the Lord. One more passage, and then we'll move on. Isaiah 1, verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, rams and the fat of cattle. Actually, I think we read that one already, didn't we? Well, just write that down. Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 16 is part of what you'll, you'll remember there. Now, let's apply all that to the church as I've already started doing some in that thought. Attitude is everything, right? You probably heard that in leadership kind of things. Attitude is everything. And listen, what God is saying to us in the church, if your attitude is wrong, when it comes to me, everything else in the church will go south. Everything. Have you ever wondered why ministries can rise up and and look like they're doing so well multitudes of people after people after people coming and all of a sudden it fades away? And all, the, the all of a sudden could be over a course of some time, some years. And you're wondering, what happened? Well, we have to realize that what God started, God can sustain, right? And there must be a reason why it stops. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't change directions on certain things. He does. But the real issue is that when you and I come to him for anything without a heart that desires just as our priority, as our priority, to worship him. Everything else is amiss because we're just trying to get something from him 
or we're missing what God really wants, number one. Listen, every father in this planet knows that when a child comes to them and says, Daddy, I love you. I love you. And I just want you to... Listen, dads, wouldn't it be a blessing if on Christmas morning your kids, before they opened a present, said to you, Daddy, I just want you to know, I don't care about any of this stuff. I love you as my priority. Well, first of all, you'd have a heart attack. And then 911 come, you know, your whole day would be ruined because you'd be in the ER all day long. But can you imagine if that were the scenario in your home? That's what God wants. God just wants us to come before him and say, God, I just want you to know, I love you more than anything that you could ever give to me or provide for me because you are my God and I'm your child. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. Listen, we can go through the motions of lots of ministry. Music can be phenomenal. You can have all the greatest ministries there are in the world. We can have Bible messages preached by preachers that are the greatest outspoken people in the world. But if our attitude is wrong about worship, we have missed everything. And that is so fundamental. We cannot forget that. So how would we define true worship? It would be simply honor and, direct, and adoration directed to God. That's what worship is. We're honoring him directly. And that comes from knowing who he is and what he's done for us. That's the impetus for our worship. We're here this morning because we know what God has done for us, right? You're worshiping the Lord on this Sunday before we celebrate Christmas on Friday because you're saying, I'm thankful that God has provided for me a Savior. That's why I'm here. And we come every Sunday because of the resurrection of our Savior. We celebrate what He's done for us. And our hearts just want to express that, right? But unfortunately, too often, we try to come and get on God's good side. Maybe He won't be displeased with me if I do this or that. You see how we go wrong and go south on those things? It's very, very important. The Apostle Paul is a good example of a person who was so fully engaged with God. And I've already read this one to you last week, but just let me remind you, as he's, and as I was saying earlier, as he's laying out the problems of the sinful heart in chapter one of Romans, remember I told you he just like pauses for a minute. It just like, he just can't contain himself. And he says this, as they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, it's almost like he has to pause right there and says, who is blessed forever. Amen. It's like he's teaching about the wickedness of sin and what's happening, and then he's saying something about the creator, and he goes, oh, how blessed we are. Oh, how incredibly blessed we are. Here's another example in Romans 11 as he's teaching more. For just as you were once disobedient to God but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. He's talking about Israel and the church here. Israel rejected so we as the church get the blessings but now he's going to say but be careful because as you got the blessings they're going to receive mercy as well because they're going to miss what you've gotten. For God has shut up all disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. In other words, it's going to be to the Jew and to the Gentile. That's what he's talking about in context. And now, as Paul's thinking through that, in verse 33, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It's like, oh, this is just blowing my mind. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who can become his counselor? Who's first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's just like, oh, I've got to get this off my chest. It's just, I can't hold it back. As he closes the letter, this amazing epistle to the church. Chapter 16, verse 27, he ends with this. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. To the church in Ephesus, he says, as he's finished, now the, the, the book of Ephesians is divided into six chapters. It's divided into two parts. The first three chapters are about doctrine or teachings. 
The second three are about practical application of those teachings. And so as he finishes chapter 3, he says, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Amen. To the church in Philippi, he wrote this, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. To Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God be honor and glory forever. Amen. 2 Timothy 4, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 5, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 3 in 2 Peter, to him be glory both, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Jude ends, Jude verse 25, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. And you say, well, those are a bunch of religious fanatics. And God is saying, No. This is the heart of my people. These men, as they were being prompted and moved by the Holy Spirit to write, were so overwhelmed with what God was delivering to them in truth, they just had to back up and say, Amen! Let it be done. Because he is far too awesome for me to comprehend this. If that's not enough, we get to Revelation chapter 1, and we hear something very similar from John in chapter 1. Something very similar in Revelation chapter 5. Something very similar in Revelation chapter 7. And this is from heaven. Where the expression of praise is, To Him be the glory forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. And why are they saying that? Because again, they cannot contain what God has done in their hearts. Why? Because they're looking to the cross. And they're remembering that Christ came, was born to a virgin who came to pay the debt of their sin and set them free so that they could live with him forever. Folks, listen. When was the last time you truly just sat and thought about what God has done for you? It'll blow your mind when you really get into the depths of it. I'm not talking about weird, mystical stuff. I'm just talking about understanding Let's put it in perspective. These children who stood here need to know Christ as their Savior. You know why? Because they're going to grow up as adults and they will either enter into an eternity of hell or they will enter into an eternity with God. Right? Is that not Bible truth? That's the Lord's truth, right? Can you imagine one of these precious children living eternally in the pit of hell. Can you imagine that? I don't want to imagine that. I want to spend my entire life proclaiming the truth of God so that people are rescued. Because the truth of the matter is, God has come to rescue us. And that's what he did. Now from that, how can you not, day after day, praise him from the depths of your soul? Do you see the point? How can we not? How can we just give him the wink of an eye or the bat or the, the nod of a head or something and just go on our merry way without folding inwardly and saying, praise you, Father, for what you have done. You've set me free. You've set me free. And that's what was coming out of these people's hearts. And that should be us. Now, there are other ways that worship can be expressed. Worship doesn't just have to be in those ways. It can be expressed through loving our neighbors because we do it out of an act of obedience, right? Because our Savior saved us. And so he commands us to love others, to provide for them, people in general, from the heart. Listen, we should never ever as a church do anything in the community just because we want people to come here to make ourselves look better. 
We want to do what we do with our neighbors so that we are showing them that they can have a home in eternity just like you and I do. But if our heart is just not right, then what we'll do is we'll try to build some big edifice for ourselves that will have nothing to do with worship. Okay, now, that takes us all back to the Magi for a moment. We know Herod didn't care about worship, and he's rotting in hell because of it. But the Magi are different, and that's what I love about them. Notice what they said in verse 2 of Matthew 2. Go back to our text. Here's what they said. We saw his star in the east, and here's why we came. Isn't this beautiful? They had one purpose. They came to worship. They came to worship. And we don't know a lot about these guys, except they came from a long distance. And I, I know a lot more than I can tell you right now. From Persia, a lot behind all of this. Powerful men probably were, could have been hundreds, not necessarily magi, but hundreds of people because of who they were in the day. They were very powerful. They could have been with multitudes of soldiers and servants with them. We think of three because there were three gifts, but more than likely those were the three gifts, but there were many magi that came, perhaps. They were people who studied the heavens, astrologers. Most were considered magicians or sorcerers, and that came from Zoroastrianism, from Zoroaster. That all happened back in the 6th BC, which was a pagan religion, but they worshipped because that's what their heart was. But these magi in particular were different. And we know they were different because of what they said. We came to worship this true God. Now, how did they know about this true God? Well, probably back to the days of Daniel, when Daniel was in captivity in Babylon. Remember the story of Daniel? Daniel was a great man of God, and he witnessed to the people around him. They knew who he was. In fact, they tried to kill him because of his faith. And so, evidently, Daniel was very influential in the life of the Persian people. And these people probably were descendants of the people who were from Persia in the day of Daniel. And so they would have heard the prophecies. They would have been taught the things of God. And so when the prophecies in their minds came through true and the power of the Spirit was working, they changed their lives literally to travel the distances that they did for one purpose. One purpose, to worship. That's what we're told. They came for one reason, nothing else. And we're told that they came into the home of Joseph and Mary probably as much as two years later, perhaps. And their first response is what? What does the text say? They fell to their knees and they worshiped. That was their first response. To kiss the hand, so to speak. To bow themselves in honor of Christ. Can you imagine that scene? Joseph and Mary have no idea who these people are, at least what we're told. We don't have any information about that. I mean, nobody texted and said, hey, we'll be there in five minutes. You know, nobody had a GPS and could track them. You know, it was just none of that. So all we can imagine is that God had worked in their hearts so much so that they changed their lives, left their families potentially to go and to worship Christ. That's what they were doing. Put their own lives in jeopardy to go and to worship him. It didn't matter. Nothing else mattered to them. Why? I have to believe because they had been rescued. God had opened their heart to see the truth. And they were so overwhelmed by what God had done, they had one response. They had to worship him. And when it was over and they left their gifts, we're told that God warned them not to go back to Herod, but to go back another way. And they did, and they went home, having accomplished what God had set out for them to do. Listen, can I just ask you this in closing? <clears throat> Why are you here? Why'd you come this morning? I mean, it's a hassle, isn't it? I mean, really? You gotta set your alarm. You gotta get the kids up. I mean, everybody's gotta have a bath at night. You gotta brush your teeth. You know, you gotta put your makeup on, your deodorant. I mean, it's just a hassle, 
right? So, I mean, so why'd you come? Well, some people think they're going to get brownie points with God. Well, maybe God will approve me a little bit more. No, it doesn't work that way. He approves us through the cross, right? That's our approval. Not because of us, but because of him. He gave his son. His son sacrificed his life for us. He did it. He did it all. You and I have one responsibility as our priority. The priority of our lives is to worship him. That's what the Magi did. They came and they worshiped. Why are you here? Why'd you come? Well, I hope the answer is you came to worship. You came to worship. My mom used to like to say warts and all. That means you just come as you are, right? You just, hey, listen, we're just people. Did God put here for a season to worship him and to display his glory to the world? And doesn't he do that through us? You know, some of the most beautiful testimonies come from God's people who are going through troubles and difficulties and God sweeps in and saves the day and displays himself. And the world stands back and goes, wow. I was just talking to somebody after the first service about somebody that we mutually know who's not a believer. And my wife and I saw this person that we mutually know. I hope this doesn't get confusing for you. And this person that we know who's not a believer realized that this other family's coming to the church. Okay, so we got two families at the church. This other person's not at the church. And all of a sudden, they're getting a little inquisitive. Well, are they coming to your church? Yeah. Oh. Well, that's, that's where the conversation stopped. But you know what that told me? God is doing something. And you know what I envisioned just a minute ago? Now, I'm not, I'm not into visions. Don't, don't hear any of that. But in my human mind, as we were singing, before we started, I sat there and tears began to come into my eyes because I saw this unsafe person standing there worshiping. And I'm just praying. Even, I'm just telling my, I didn't even told my wife this. She doesn't know because she left after the first service, had to go out of town. But I'm just praying that God, through us, somehow is going to touch the life of this person and he's going to come to worship the true and living God as the priority of his life. Wouldn't that be awesome? Oh, wouldn't that be awesome? Folks, listen. Beloved, we're going to live forever. Let's don't get distracted by things that don't matter. Let's worship God as the priority of our lives. Let our church be known in this community as people who worship the living God. And God will knock our socks off. Guarantee you that. In his way, how he does that, but he'll make himself known, right? Okay, so much more could be said, but let's close. Father, we, boy, we just have to pause now. It's kind of, it's just an overwhelming thought and truth of what you've done for us. I pray, Lord, that you would never let us tire of, of our salvation. Lord, may we always be able to answer the question as to why we do what we do with you, meaning that we do what we do because of you. That's it. We don't need any other reason. We travel, we go, we do, we learn, we study, we pray, we we, we talk, we ask, we let our light shine because of you. And we do that because you have rescued us. And we want to show the world how awesome you are. So Lord, work in our hearts, in our own respective ways, in our own respective parts of the world, within our own respective relationships. Lord, that we may just simply be humble servants of yours, living what we know to be true. And uh, Lord, we just will be so blessed to watch you do your work. Thank you for this time of year. And Lord, thank you for what's coming on Thursday. If it's your will, we will gather and we'll worship you before the night we celebrate your arrival. But more so, Lord, we're looking forward to your second coming. Even as John said, even so, Lord, come. Please come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Everyone stand, please. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Who angels greet with them soon while shepherds watch our keeping? Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you for your son who left the perfect place in heaven to come to, to live as, as, as a mortal, to suffer so many things, fully knowing that that's what was going to happen. We thank you for him and his willingness to do that. Lord, we just thank you for the family that you've given us here that at this time of the year you, you bring us together, whether it be for a service uh, for Christmas Eve or our, our family that comes for a time of, of fellowship and, and all in our homes. But Lord, we just thank you so much for giving us all of that. We know it's all because you love us. And so Lord, we just, we just honor you, we praise you, and we worship you.